Welcome to Data Endure's first tech talk of 2024. I thought it is the first one. It is the first one. Wow. Uh, 24 marks um, a very special time for Data Endure. Uh, it is our 40th anniversary. So before we get going, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. And thank um, you all for the support. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, think about the change. Think about um, how the pace has changed, how technology has changed. Um, and 40 years, uh, we're, we've been going through and just looking at things from 1984. And wow, quite a difference. It's a very different place. We were talking about parachute pants. I, I was going to bring it up. I didn't know if you were. Um, so anyway, uh, we just we just want to thank you for joining us. Uh, this year is going to be a fun year for us as we go through um, different ways to celebrate 40 years. But what we're going to spend some time on today are just trends, right? New year, uh, people go through you know new goal setting, um, evaluating what they're doing, what they're not. And it's just a good time to reflect. And so I spent some time just looking at what the market and what the industry said were some top trends uh, in our market. And I'm just going to rapid fire to Shaheen and we'll get some input from you in terms of up, down, issue, not issue. You know, how, how do you weigh in on these things? Having been in this industry for 40 years? It's getting there. Close to <laughs> for, for a while. Although in 84... I was a junior in high school, so I hadn't started really working in the restaurant industry, but not this space. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, I think the first trend that we bring up, obviously you see it everywhere, you hear it everywhere, is AI, right? It really took everybody by storm last year. And I think there's an expectation now that, I don't even know if the dust is settling yet, but there's going to be a maturity. Um, what is the impact going to be? How our business is going to adapt? Um, when you think about AI and what people should know or think about in 2024, what's your perspective? Yeah, before um, before bringing the 24 into play, um, we've talked about this when we talked about the evolution of endpoint security from antivirus to EDR to MDR to XDR to blah, 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 DR, whatever, whatever the end state we get to. Same thing happened back in the day with cloud. Yes. We came up with this concept of cloud. We had... Then we said, you know what, even the on-prem stuff is kind of a cloud, so let's call that private cloud. And then we got public cloud, and then we got distributed clouds, and we got, and so the I, I'd like to now bring our thinking back to AI is become, has become another marketing term. Mm -hmm. It is not a technology. It is not a thing. It is not something you could put your fingers on. There's a handful of underlying functionality and technology and capabilities that make the concept of what was supposed to be artificial or augmented intelligence a reality. Um, I would say up until this past year when ChatGPT kind of shook up the world, we didn't really have a notion of augmented reality that us average humans got to see in labs, sure, mm -hmm. but publicly available and accessible. But every single security provider, a ton of different data providers all had AI built into their stacks and they have rushed in the, in 23 to jump on the AI bandwagon mm -hmm. and say, we've been AI since 1999. Mm -hmm. um, I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea. The, uh, the issue is that there's really two different complete categories of what is AI. And I forever hated the concept of artificial intelligence and really focused on its augmented intelligence. It's, it's helping because all of AI prior to ChatGPT was really machine learning and deep learning. It was 
culling through the data and finding trends and patterns and so on and so forth that then a machine could make decisions on. Um, fast forward to 2023, the, the exposure that Chad GPT gave to the whole concept of generative AI and a lot of what was learned in trying to develop AI to make decisions on a tech and data perspective really came and became a pattern that allowed us to take natural language processing, which is understanding natural human language, um, take into that and put machine models that allowed us to say this model is based on learning and behavior of a person so that we can create this interactive human-like chat functionality, as opposed to the traditional chatbots, which were basically if-then-else logic. Mm -hmm. So we've moved away from the if-then-else logic of what we used to call AI to something that is interactive and more natural language. Um, and I think it's important to understand that while that has made a huge impact to business and there's some huge advancements that are potentially going to impact um, white-labeled, white-collared um, worker type roles, is not going to change the way we do business fundamentally. Generative AI isn't going to be your security analyst. The old traditional AI that finds anomalies and detects patterns that are mistaken, that still exists and that has been existing and that will continue to do it. So this whole push that AI is going to change the world, it's only going to change the world in terms of the consumer interaction, in my opinion. It's not going to change the world in terms of underlying tech changes it will help us because these machine models can now be built that are more technology related humans, if you will, as opposed to just the white collar. So I'll give you, for example, one of the things that we're working on in the labs is how do we create a security analyst, generative AI, but it's not intended to replace a security analyst because we can never rely on that generative AI to be able to ask the question to say, this looks funny. I'm going to dig a little deeper. The discernment. Yeah, right. the discernment is missing. But but the understanding intent and being able to answer questions based on a body of knowledge, that's actually really valuable. That takes time that our analysts have to spend answering questions for clients and partners. Mm -hmm. It gives that back to them to do the discernment and allows the generative right. AI to do it. So I think there's some huge impact to business from that perspective. But to think it's going to change the way we do business, I'm not there. Yeah. Well, and I think I think your your example is great. You know, there are a lot of things that we do in any one of our jobs. It's like, oh gosh, if we could speed this up, or if we could get someone else to do this, or if we could have someone dig through this for us, or whatever it is. Um, so where are those areas where that acceleration can help? the more trained individual do their job better. Exactly. So, um, I mean, we've seen it in sales, we've seen it in marketing, we've seen it in tech. And so that does make sense that, you know, if you put that frame of reference in it um, around security, that it can help you do our job better, it can help us find things faster, it can help us isolate things more precisely if we harness it in the right way. And there is, there is certainly a security implication of generative AI that comes to the table, but it's no different than any other type of machine learning or data processing or anything in the data science space, there's always been the notion of poisoning the well. Mm -hmm. And now, because these models are going out and scouring and grabbing information from the public internet, 
it's a lot easier to build a site that can easily poison the well and look like real data. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. That's what we're starting to see, which is giving you know malicious links and things like that into the platform. Which is why almost every generative AI is saying we're not going to give you links in our responses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's very easy to do that poisoning of the well. But I would argue that nothing's changed. We always had the poison the well problem. We always had go check your sources, go inspect what you expect. Those things are not new. From the moment two people communicated to each other on a computer in different locations, and I'm going to go back to the days of Cisco's foundation, we had the problem of the, something in the middle can change that communication mm -hmm. and act like act like a man in the middle and do something. Mm -hmm. From that moment on, human communication was no longer this trusted interaction. It was, I'm reading something and thinking it's coming from someone. Mm -hmm. The implications that AI brings to the table is now we have the very deep fakes that are able to mimic voice, mimic characterizations, mimic the look and feel of a person. And so you can get a voice call from somebody and it looks like it's your boss. It looks like it's the CEO. It looks like, and they're asking you to transfer $100,000 into their account. Trust, but verified. So security <laughs> awareness is important. Right. But um, right. but ultimately, it's there's it's nothing new. It's just more complicated. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes it all that more important that these different layers can do the job they're meant to do, fill gaps, support the other layers. It's, it's just a... a a more pressure test on the security layers yep. that you ought to be having yep. in place anyway. Yep. Um, all right, well, speaking of layers and teams, um, another trend that I believe will be controversial for us, um, a lot of folks out there are talking about kind of the convergence of IT and security, right? Um, given the level of threats we have, given how the threat landscape is changing, right? Um, it's not just isolated to a firewall or you know to certain areas, but you know you got to care about how your storage is configured. You need to understand how your clouds are configured, and that some of those fall into the realm of IT. And so, how do you feel about this 24, 2024 trend saying, "Well, gosh, maybe we ought to start converging IT and security teams"? So, um, quick public service announcement: I am extremely biased on this topic. So uh, I've been doing what we do for 25, almost 30 years, and that is outsourcing IT technology and security technology. And most recently over the last decade, focused strictly on security. So I'm, I'm biased in that context, but here's the, I would say my perspective on the whole thing is if you remember back to, again, going, I keep tapping into cloud, going back to cloud, we all of a sudden decided that we need a virtualization engineer. We no longer need a server engineer and a network engineer because we have now virtualized the infrastructure. And so we need somebody who can work on top of that virtual stack. And it's hard to train the network guys to do server stuff. And it's hard to turn the train the server guys to do the network stuff. So we need a new mm -hmm. category of engineer, the convergence of mm -hmm. those two functions. And then we had the realization, well, security is still hard. Maybe we should take the firewall out of that. Everything else can mm -hmm. merge. Mm -hmm. So VLANs, segmentation, um, VPCs, all the things that make up the core. And think of it as the internal network and the servers that run on it, whether it's in cloud or on-prem. That stuff should be a virtualization engineer or a cloud engineer or whatever term you want to give it. We're now faced with the same thing that the market is telling us we have to do. Um, 
at the end of that whole convergence concept, we realize, you know what, a virtualization engineer can create policies to segment servers from each other, but they don't really understand why. They don't understand mm -hmm. the benefits of it. We really do need somebody who understands the network. And the network, the folks who transition from network to virtualization, they don't understand why specific amounts of compute or uh, memory or whatever are important to a specific type of application or how, how to fine tune an application, how to make a database run faster. So maybe we were hasty in, in our judgment to rush to this thing. Um, of course, back then I was very biased to say, you don't need any engineers. You can outsource it all to me. Um, so that's what I'm saying. Public service announcement was heavily biased there. Um, even in that context back then, we learned very quickly that you can't do that because as an outsource provider back in the day, I started my career in EDS, my tech career in EDS, and uh, which was heavily outsourced, which is your employees are now our employees. You have no IT team left to a more managed services model where we started the first managed services in the country. And what we came to realize was, in fact, we can't possibly know how to leverage technology to make a key differentiator for that company based on technology against their competitors. All we can do is a, as an outsource provider is level the playing mm -hmm. field and make IT commodity so that they don't have to worry about the Joneses are doing better than them mm -hmm. or they're not mm -hmm. doing something they ought to be doing. But then on top of that, how do you take and like take advantage of data science or um, technology in the field or any of the other number of things that can uniquely differentiate you from your competition? You had to have engineers mm -hmm. on staff, whether it was architecture level or engineers. So that was the point where MSBs really started to become something critical in the stack because now the commodity IT, the help desk, the user support, the patching, the basic stuff, which was nobody wanted to do, mm -hmm. can be handled. But the the real focus on the business ended up being internal resources. Yeah, right. So fast forward today, it's the same thing. We can't expect... Um, uh, there are plenty of IT people who have good security experience because historically, many companies, especially smaller ones, didn't have a budget right. to separate those. Right. So they've been they've been converged for decades. Right. Um, but the same thing kind of applies fast forward today to the market is also at the same time saying you, you can't possibly keep up with the 3,500 security vendors that are out there, do the shootouts, do the evaluations, pick the right tool. And by the time you implement it, that tool is obsolete and you right. got to go do it all over again. Right. And it takes you a year to implement the technology. And by the time, you know, you're 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 effectively no longer effective and the tool's outdated and you got to start over. Um, it's I've always likened it to painting the Golden Gate Bridge. You yeah. get to one end, you're starting again. And so the market has been saying, look for MSSPs, outsource your security and focus on what differentiates you as a company, make security a commodity. And and you've also heard me say that the the acronym MSSP has really become muddied um, with the confluence of of people who just added a security tool to their stack and call themselves MSSP, but they're not true MSSPs. So buyer beware in that category. But should the convergence happen, I think as a result of if you do follow that outsourcing mantra and the concept and the benefits of continuous improving platforms and technologies, then Yes, you don't need a dedicated security team. You don't need people who are 100% security focused. And the concept that smaller companies are taking advantage of, which is my IT people have understanding of security and know how to talk about it and know how to interact with it, 
but they've got a 24 by seven security operations mm -hmm. partner that is telling them, here's the area to put energy and focus into. Here's the risks, here's the vulnerabilities, here's the things we got to address. In that context, um, yes, a convergence makes sense. But in the context of if you're doing it all yourself, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. There has to be a separation of responsibility because you can't have the wolf watching the hen house. Well, yeah, and I think I think that tension or that pressure, you know, where one, um, you know, liken it to sales and marketing or think about an engineering team. You know, I mean, you there there's a healthy tension there that makes sure each one is checking the other, yep. if you will. And, you know, from some of the um, customer conversations that I've heard, right, when you try to do it all, um, IT often has more of that level of urgency, right? Something's broken, something's fixed, you know, something needs to be fixed, we need to get on this, or something needs to be built and developed by this timeline. And security can sometimes be relegated to, um, to kind of, okay, when we get around to it, right? Well, we implemented this, we checked the box, we'll go back and inspect it later. We'll go back and we'll look at the alerts later. And, and there's almost an impression that I can set it, forget it, and get back to it later. And I think in the world we live in, we can't have that. Like, we have to have someone having the same diligence on security that we do on, hey, we got to make sure the help desk is available 24-7 to the executives. Or, hey, we have to make sure. Mm -hmm. Well, security, same thing. We have to make sure that someone's on it 24-7. We have to make sure someone's watching. And I think it's very hard to do that. Um when when you're trying to converge when you're also supporting yeah the ceo or whatever yeah. the case may be. yeah the um the part of the challenge with this whole convergence concept is that the the truest and oldest security concept is separation of views hmm. and every regulatory concern so if you're regulated that whole thing is a horrible idea hmm. because you have to have separation of duty so that the people who can make the changes have a set of checks and controls that says say that those changes are monitored, controlled, approved, and that is going to slow IT down to a degree that they won't be able to operate. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, and in, I'm saying this from a security uh, practitioner perspective, in my history, when I was much younger and had far less gray hair, I used to enforce security that hindered the progress of the company. Mm -hmm. To be secure, because no, some bad guy's going to be able to get in. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we have to take this balance of security right. needs to be much more of a consultative role in the organization. And part of the challenge we see is back in the 90s, the CIO started to get visibility as a board level position. And the CISO started as a new function underneath the CIO. Today, with security being such a top of mind board thing, the CISO is not just at an executive level. The CISO is a board level seat that mm -hmm. sits in the board and presents all security posture and status to the board. So that context means that now, if the CISO is reporting to the CIO, you, you don't have the separation of duty, but the board recognizes that it needs to be at that mm -hmm. top level. But still today, and so I question whether this is, you know, the, the practitioners saying we need to merge the function so that this this separation of the board is given direction to the CISO, the board is giving direction to the CIO, and there's a battle between them needs to go away. So maybe the focus should be, how do we take and get rid of this notion of chief information and chief information security officers and merge the executive level mm. and put the responsibility, let the executive level be a balanced, converged position but the teams themselves, you can't have an IT person be a SOC engineer. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. You can't have a sock engineer be an IT person. Mm -hmm. So it's concept is, you know, it's it's one of those unintended consequences of yeah. the trailing implications. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, moving along. Um next uh item that seems to be top of mind with everybody, and interestingly enough, we've been talking about this for a very long time, is zero trust, right? Um, you know, COVID kind of split everybody to everywhere with devices everywhere personal devices, you know, corporate devices, networks, Starbucks, you know, wherever. Um, all of a sudden, zero trust um, as a concept has really, you know, jumped to the top of the list, which is understandable, relevant, correct. But um, without rehashing everything that we have said about zero trust and respecting people's time, um, what are a few things you would say about zero trust in 2024? Yeah. Uh, so fundamentally, under the core, without rehashing, zero trust has existed for 30 years. It's mm -hmm. not a concept that's new. And it's, it literally means moving from an explicit, implicit to an explicit trust. Mm -hmm. So create explicit policies, rules, rather than implicitly assuming something is in place. Um, so what does that mean as we go forward? Um, we spent a lot of time last year and in 22 talking about how VPNs are fundamentally broken mm -hmm. and ZTNA became, so zero trust network access became a big thing. But all that had happened is most of the manufacturers and technology providers took the VPN concentrator, stuck it in AWS and said, we're ZTNA. Mm -hmm. Nothing has changed from a functionality perspective. It's still the same insecure VPN concentrator. Mm -hmm. It's just not in your data center, mm -hmm. it's someplace else. Mm -hmm. So I think when we talk about zero trust, we really have to get back to that implicit versus explicit mm -hmm. context and try to understand what it is. If we truly want to implement zero trust and not just jump on the marketing bandwagon, mm -hmm. if really we're trying to secure the environment and assume from the beginning that I don't trust this device, this individual, until I've validated they are who they say they are, mm -hmm. then there's a lot of moving parts that mm -hmm. go into that. There's identity that goes into it. There's actual device inspection. So we used to call it network uh, access controls, mm -hmm. but it's no longer network access controls. It's device access controls because they could be anywhere. Yeah. They're not on your network. So that uh, DNS protection, um, monitoring SaaS applications, Zero Trust takes a much bigger, and an SSE is probably a great place to think about where Zero Trust and cloud security come together. So an SSE is um, Secure Service Edge, and it's the subset of the SASE Secure Access Service Edge that simplifies implementing SASE. So take SD-WAN out, which is really difficult and complicated, mm -hmm. and people said, I can't do SD-WAN. Mm -hmm. It takes me three years to implement that. We do it in 90 days. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, but take and implement the core components of Zero Trust Network Access, uh, endpoint security, user identity, mm -hmm. those types of things that make create a concept that is really more about fundamental, how can a small, mid, and um, uh, larger half of the uh, enterprise space, but not very large enterprise, how can they take advantage of zero trust functionalities mm -hmm. and be effective? Mm -hmm. So look at Secure Service Edge as a way to assume mm -hmm. the as a model, um, but don't just jump on the marketing bandwagon, dig in. Did they simply move the mm -hmm. VPN concentrator mm -hmm. to the cloud? Yeah, make sure you're yeah. not picking something where the problem's been moved yes. and you're getting a solution. Or it's a market, it's rebranded because, yeah. again, they wanted to jump on whatever this new bandwagon was. Yeah. So I, is zero trust important? Absolutely. 
Is it a new thing? No, it's right. always been important. Right. But we just haven't implemented it, and it wasn't as big a deal when we didn't have distributed right. assets. Got it. So um, two labs. Uh, and one, I, I believe I'm, we're going to hear the same thing you said earlier is nothing new under the sun. Um, but, you know, social engineering is still top of mind, right? 80% um, of breaches occur through compromised identities in one form or fashion. Um, so I think the tactics of social engineering just continue to evolve, are all living on social media in some form or fashion, um, helps accelerate and exacerbate this. Um, any quick thoughts on 24 social engineering? I think it's probably expect more. Um, is there anything someone can do different or is there any way someone can think different? Yeah, I would I would say you're spot on. There's nothing new under the sun. It is we've been doing social engineering for as long as there was people throwing away data into dumpsters. We were dumpster diving, collecting information, calling into a company and pretending we were somebody to get credentials and then get into the network. We don't dumpster dive anymore because everything's electronic now. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna say everything, but there's a lot of you out there still not. Um, but uh Mostly everything is electronic. So how do you get Intel if everything is electronic without breaking into the network first? The name social is your biggest hint. Mm -hmm. Social media is where we put everything about our daily lives and who we are, what our dog's name is, what our aunt's name is, what our kids' names are. And a bad actor goes and figures out everything about you and then calls in pretending to be you to the help desk with all the intelligence and they say, what's your mother's maiden name? Yeah. Guess what? I just got that off social media. And MGM gets breached. And MGM gets breached. <laughs> right. And, uh, right. and so it's, uh, it, it isn't anything new, but the hackers have gotten smarter about how they do social engineering. And I think it's important. And then bring in the AI conversation, which is now we're creating deep fake uh, communications, which sound like they're coming from mm -hmm. someone because they take their, uh, they they take their voice, the way they speak, the way they write, and and are able to communicate, making it sound like them. And in, they can actually model and sound like the voice of somebody based on recordings they find and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So it's security awareness. It's implementing, you know, a second set of eyes, doing mm -hmm. inspections, doing peer review. Um, if the CEO calls you and said, I'm in Aruba and send me a check for $10,000 because I just bought a yacht. Go talk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Don't jump through the hoops. Go have a set of checks and balances that are controlling. If a vendor calls you and says, we changed our account number, don't just change the account number. Have a set of checks and balances. Right. Go and inspect. So it's security Human awareness. Inspection. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. security awareness training. Just like I said, we can't create a security analyst that fills the role of a security analyst, but it can answer the frontline support. Same thing applies here. You can't replace the human inspection. Right. Um, you you have to have that discernment that says, this doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. Our CEO never went off to Aruba and bought a yacht like mm -hmm. this before. If he does, then I, I can't help you. But but yeah. but generally speaking, you got to have that discernment to say there's something not right, something fishy, this doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. But don't rely on one person. Put policy in place and do security awareness training that says, if you're getting anything that is out of normal daily operations, mm -hmm. the second set of eyes has to mm -hmm. inspect it. Mm -hmm. You have to have two people approve it. You can't have a single person approve it. Or we, you know, something that we even do internally, right? We have a security council. 
security committee. So something comes in, something looks weird, it gets shot over there. Yep. I mean, anyone in the company is invited to do it, right? Yep. What is this? So and I'm sure the team gets more than they want or need, but at least I'd rather they get more than less, right? This. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, great advice. And, you know, one of the things um, you started talking to me about uh, last year, uh, probably mid-year, um, you know, Shaheen and I are pontificating about, you know, all sorts of things, technology, along with whiskey. And uh, and he starts talking about quantum computing. And I'm kind of like, well, I watched Quantum Leap a long time ago. Quantum computing, I don't know. I'm dating myself. Um, what is that, right? And so interesting to see towards year end, you hear at the World Economic Forum, you know, last week, all of a sudden quantum computing's top of mind. And it's more as a caution, more as a, hey, this is coming. Um, but you're starting to hear people talking about um, post-quantum cryptography. And it's kind of like, oh my gosh, what is this, right? People are barely getting through understanding, you know, the acceleration that AI is bringing to the world. And now we're starting to hear about quantum computing. Quickly, what is it? What do people need to worry about now? And what do people just need to kind of sit back and watch evolve? Yeah, the, um, we've worked, uh, the best way to think about this, and this is this is not an accurate um, uh, depiction of it, but it helps to give you some context. We've worked in a two-dimensional world in computing for the last 30 years, and quantum computing effectively takes us into a third dimension. And what it's really doing is it's giving us the ability to process data faster, process things faster, faster memory, more memory, larger size data, so it makes the computer that much faster is the short of it. Um, what's the implication of that? The implication is that when it took us three weeks to crack a password on a regular computer, we can do it in 30 seconds now with quantum computing. So the risk, the risk factor is now those things that were unbreakable things, like we talk about 256 and 512 AES encryption, and nobody's going to break it unless they have five mainframes mm -hmm. running for three weeks. That's not true anymore. Mm. Um, so it isn't quantum computing still is not mainstream. There's a lot of people who are getting quantum ready. And what that really means is that the, the post quantum algorithms for encryption, that's where the cryptography comes from, are able to withstand the attacks from a quantum computer. That's the concept It's so that, and, and here is the real fundamental underlying encryption today. Our answer to protect our data and the regulatory concerns tell us encrypt your data because if the bad actor gets it, it's just garbage. Mm -hmm. The worry now is, let's say it takes, let's just stretch it out. I don't think it'll take 10 years, but let's say it takes 10 years for quantum computing to become a reality. All the bad actor has to do is take your encrypted data when they're exfiltrating data. We all know that ransomware happens all the time which means the hackers are getting in, they're exfiltrating data, and the people who have their data encrypted are like, it's okay, it's encrypted, mm -hmm. we can't do anything with mm -hmm. it. But all they have to do is sit on it until that AES-256 encryption is a child's play activity on a quantum computer. Mm -hmm. And if we go back in time, I remember when... Um, we went to the first time I had a multi-core processor and a multi-processor multi-core uh, system. Um, we ran some security tools against the entire Active Directory for the company I was working at to see if a hacker could actually hack the passwords. 
we were able to, in 48 hours, completely hack the entire security account database and get all the passwords for all of our users. Mm. I think there was only two users who had something like a 16 character wow. password, but the rest of them were using like eight character passwords. Right. They're, you know, Bob one and Jenny, Jenny two and whatever right. it was. So it was, that was a moment in time. And we're talking to age myself. This was like 1994. Mm -hmm. So we're talking a leap ahead of that functionality to where those passwords seemed really secure and all of a sudden they weren't. Mm -hmm. And it took us 48 hours to do 2000 passwords in a security accounts database. And we raised it up to the executive committee and said, look, we need to make our passwords harder. We need to make them more complicated. We need to make sure people aren't using their names. And that's when the start of the, you need to make complex right. passwords really started right. was People like us in the security space were figuring out how to get past security. We now have the same issue, but not for passwords. We have issues on databases that are encrypted. We have issues on files that are encrypted that will no longer, that encryption will not be a hindrance if the encryption algorithms are not post-quantum ready. Mm -hmm. So that is the that is the fundamental shift that I would say over the next year or two, people need to start thinking the concern, the risk. In 24, you should be looking at technologies that are post-quantum ready now, because if your data gets stolen and you've encrypted with something that is not post-quantum ready, post-quantum, that data is clear as day. Let me ask a really, and, and I want to wrap up because we've probably gone a little longer today than we usually do, but, you know, it's intriguing. Um, when I think about, when I hear post-quantum ready, when I hear quantum computing isn't here yet, but beware, it's coming how can something be created that's post-quantum ready now when quantum isn't even here? So, like, how does that work? So they already, it, it exists. It's just not mainstream. It's not something that the average user, the consumer is going to get access to. So it's not that it doesn't exist. Okay. There's, there's quantum chipsets that are able to process in what are called qubits instead of bits. Um, and the, they are available now and the researchers and developers and all those are working with them. So it's, when we say post-quantum ready, it's when quantum computing becomes mainstream. mainstream. Got it. So it's not, it's not that they're making, they're, they're creating concepts for, so all of the companies that do, um, that are in the cryptography space today have access to quantum computing to create quantum ready capability. Um, and you know, there's some really interesting, if you're interested in this space, give us a call. We'd love to talk to you about it. There's some really interesting tech out there that takes and the encryption algorithms themselves become swappable. They're able to be ripped and replaced with quantum capable mm -hmm. algorithms without having to redo your entire architecture. Wow. So there's some very interesting technologies that are coming out today that address this problem head on and are way ahead of the rest of the competition. Mm. Um, and and I would say, out of all the things coming out of the forecast for 24, I would put my energy into uh, post-quantum because we know that one out of two companies gets targeted and attacked. Out of those, three out of four of them get encrypted, which mm -hmm. means that the data was exfiltrated and the hackers encrypted the data and that means they have your data. If Even if your data was encrypted, they have your data. Right. So now apply that to this post-quantum. And that means that they have your data. And at some point, they're going to they be able to decrypt it. it. Right. And 
eight out of 10 of those companies that were encrypted get hit more than once. So not only do they steal your data once, but they're going to come back and get it again. Right. So all the rest of our security services help to protect and prevent that from happening. But you can't assume you're never going to get attacked. You can't assume even with the best security, bad actors keep evolving and it's really hard to stay ahead of them. So there will be data exfiltration in your future. Not not maybe, there will be data taken out of your network. Mm -hmm. Be sure that you're protected when quantum becomes a reality. Awesome. Well, see, I learned something new again, always. Um, thank you all. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, if you have any trends that you're thinking about that maybe we haven't talked about, you know, send them in chat or... Uh, email us here and we'd love to talk to them about you because we narrowed we narrowed it down to those we thought were top but um, obviously you know for each of you individually I'm sure you've got your list of things that are going on this year as well. Um, thank you for joining us Shaheen. Um, thanks to all of you and we will see you next month. Thanks, bye -bye.